Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This evening we're going to be in 2 Kings 5. And last time we looked at the five miracles of Elisha, the prophet Elisha, what they represented. Today we see a, a dichotomy. The title of today's this evening's sermon is Ministry Gained and Ministry Lost, played out in the characters of Naaman, the Gentile Syrian commander of the army, and Gehazi, the probably Jewish uh, protege and up-and-coming next leader of Elisha the prophet. And we're going to see that tonight is opposite day, because what we might think if we didn't read the chapter Pretty much the opposite is going to happen. So jumping in with verse 1, it says, Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited, or she served, Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, if only my master, speaking of, of Naaman, were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Well, Naaman is equivalent back then to our highest ranking general of the army. He appears to be second in Syria, only subservient to the king. Uh, Naaman at some point contracts leprosy, which we know today as Hansen's disease, and in its later stages it can be quite debilitating if it's not treated. So it's actually quite remarkable that this man is still serving in the army. Verse 1, the Lord had given victory to Syria. I think sometimes God's people are myopic when it comes to seeing the blessings of God and how they go out throughout everybody. You know, the the Syrians were, were blessed at some point by God to have this powerful... And listen, there was ebbs and flows in every land, including Israel. But in this period, we see that Naaman was very faithful in executing his duties, and, and Syria benefited from that. We also find that Syria, God used Syria at times to literally harass Israel, especially the northern kingdom, because of their godlessness. That was part of what he used as punishment. And later on in history, we find that the Babylonian king, another pagan, Nebuchadnezzar, was used in a mighty way to rise up and take over the known world and lay siege to the southern kingdom and prevail over it. Again, a lot of times God used these surrounding nations uh, because Israel was so disobedient and so godless at some points that he had to deal with them. So that's kind of setting the stage. Now, historically is the Syrians at times raided Israel. And in addition to carrying back maybe wealth, uh, at times they carried back people who ended up being used as servants or slaves in the land of Syria. So it's very remarkable that we see this young, probably young Israeli girl say to Naaman's wife, I wish my master would be healed. 
Now, if he was really a cruel and horrible person, she might just keep her mouth shut and just watch him die slowly of leprosy. You can only surmise that Naaman and his wife probably treated her very well. They might have treated her like parents. The world is a strange place. I mean, uh, even go, going back, I'm a big history buff, going back to U.S. history, there were a lot of people, including Christians, who fought against slavery. And at times it didn't look like it was ever going to end. So some of them bought slaves, as many as they could, and incorporated them into their family and treated them like family. Uh, Oscar Schindler, Schindler's List, at the times of the Nazi, Nazi occupation, bought Jewish people. He said, no, 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 I need them for my factories. He bought, I think, over a thousand Jewish people out of the concentration camps, saved their lives, and used them as servants in the factories to, to have a cover for what the Nazis, you know, so the Nazis couldn't take these people. As a matter of fact, he bought so many Jews that his business after the war just failed because <laughs> he, he, it was a labor of love, really, what he did. And so I'm trying to kind of put some filler in here in context to understand what might have been going on at the time. What probably happened was the king said, this is what we're going to do. People were brought back, and Naaman and his wife might have taken compassion on this young girl and took her into the, their home. I know it's a lot of conjecture, but why else would she be desperate for her master to be healed of this leprosy? You know, Christians today, unfortunately, with the prosperity gospel, have this unbiblical notion that if you're a believer, everything's going to go smoothly for you. Tell that to the slave girl. She might have had good captors, but I'm sure she missed her parents at times. So, you know, we're called to be people of faith regardless of the circumstances. A lot of good stuff in the Bible. You know, if you go to a church for a long time and they don't really read the Bible, you really miss out. There's just a lot in here. So the servant girl tells Naaman's wife about this Elisha the prophet. Naaman's wife tells Naaman. Naaman tells the king. And then something transpires. Pretty neat. Verse 5. So the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I a god? to kill and to make alive, that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. He wants to make war with me. Right? Now you can see the attitude and the demeanor of this king of, of Israel. But so, so a letter is sent to really what probably was King Joram at the time. It was a, another godless king. He reads the letter and he's in a panic. Mamaya God, how can I do this? This is impossible. This must be, it's such an impossible request. It must be a pretext for war. By the way, none of the kings of the northern kingdom after the split were godly men, according to the scripture. That's pretty sad. And really, if you think about it, he reacts in fear, but he also reacts in pride. Hey, Joram, it's not all about you. God's still here. The prophet is still here. No one was thinking that you were actually going to do it, especially with his lack of a relationship with God. Maybe the Syrians thought that the king had a better relationship with Elisha or God than he did. And we can never assume anything about anybody, positive or negative, right? So, verse 5, Naaman brings expensive gifts. Because if you think about this, it was kind of odd. 
uh, a neighboring, uh, at times was an aggressor, at times there were peace treaties. Neighboring nation sends this general, and, and a lot of money, by the way. Um, they tabulated it to be over a million dollars. Kind of shows you the king of, what the king of Syria thought of Naaman. He must have thought, this guy is extremely valuable to me. It's worth the money. So you, you put all the pieces together. I like to do that, like little forensics, like an investigator, you know what I'm saying? And you get the big picture here. So they send them with money, but we're going to see that he eventually gets diverted to Elisha, but Elisha doesn't obviously take the money, and we're going to talk about why. Verse 8, continuing on. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, then he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and his chariot, and he stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent the messenger to him, probably Gehazi, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious, and he went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call out the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abinar and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he who says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So Naaman is healed, but not without controversy. First of all, Elisha hears the response of the king. The king wigs out, and yeah, they didn't have social media and texts and stuff, but people gossip, you know, word got out, and it comes to Elijah's ears that the king freaks out when he gets this letter, and he tears his clothes. It's a sign of grief. It's a sign of mourning. His mind goes right to, they're going to wage war on us. This is a setup. Look at the difference between godless people and people who rely on God. Look at how they look at things differently. See it all throughout the scripture. In other words, why have you torn your clothes? Why the drama? And the reason is because even though he was the king, he had really no relationship with God. And sometimes in people's lives, the greater the lack of a relationship with God, the greater the drama. They even handle things differently. It's not always the case, but many times it is. Two, Elisha says to the king, send Naaman to me. He will know that there's a prophet in Israel. It sounds prideful, but it's not. Remember, we as Christians want the world to know about Jesus, about the light of the world. Well, the Jews back then, it was part of their job too. They were supposed to be. Why did God put them in the middle of the known world? If you look on a map, the whole surrounding world, right? Yeah, North and South America really weren't much at the time, but they were in the center of everything. And they were supposed to present, they were supposed to represent for God in a way. So Elisha wanted the Syrians to know that not only is there a prophet, there's God in Israel. You may not see that from the royal court, but he's here. And it really was a poor witness, sadly, if left to the king and many faithless subjects in Israel at the time to the Syrians. Thankfully, there were some good God-fearing people in the land. Verse 11, we find Naaman's fatal flaw. I spent a lot of time building him up, basically from the text. 
and you can call it out, what was, one word, Naaman's fatal flaw? Pride. Pride, right? <laughs> so, so this is what's going on. Elisha doesn't come out of the house, and I think he did it on purpose. He was testing him. He sends his servant out. He tells him to go dip in the Jordan. And Naaman is furious. He's furious. You know, the Jordan was known at times when it's rough to be muddy, to be not so pretty. It was windy and serpentine, sort of like, depending on where you were. However, those two rivers in Syria, if you look at the map of Syria, a lot of mountains in the area, and a lot of these rivers were fresh, clean, delicious water, pure from the melting snow that would run down the mountainside. So he was prideful. Now, if left to Naaman's pride, he would have gone marching back to Syria, leprous. Leprous. Proverbs 3, repeated in 1 Peter 5, 5, says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The cool thing, though, is Naaman does change. How many times do we read in the Scripture? How many people, times do we know, folks, out there, that their pride is precluding them from something great, a blessing, even salvation? You know, some go to their grave like it. But Naaman, he changed, and he changed there. And I don't mean to be gross here, but i got to be honest with you, if I had leprosy or some disease, and God said, go dip in the septic tank, I would do a complete dunker, uh, my hair and everything. Just get this stuff off of me, you know what I'm saying? I mean, whatever it takes, right? I mean, pride is a killer. It really is. How about Jesus? Uh, one, of, one of the blind people, you know what I'm going to say, he spits on the ground, he makes mud out of his spit, and he puts it on the guy's eyes to heal him. Hey man, whatever it takes. This is the route to healing, and some won't take it because of, of pride. This is the route to salvation, and some won't take it because of pride. I want to work my way to heaven. No, 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 Jesus did all the work on the cross. Nah, it doesn't seem right. I, I want to have a part in it. Why? Jesus did all the work. Just believe, right? It's sad. See, God doesn't always work in the way that we would like. He doesn't always do blessings in the way that we would like or we would expect. We just either have to deal with it and trust Him or miss out on the blessings. Those are our choices. Well, it, it continues. There's some people that come to the rescue again. And who are they? The nobility? No. The monarchs? No. The servants? It shows two things. Number one, again, that Naaman's servants loved him. They could have said, yeah, let him march back to Syria. He's a jerk anyway. He'll be dead in a few months. That wasn't their attitude, was it? Just like the, the, the girl. So Naaman's servants loved him, I believe. And two, that the heroes in the Bible are not often the notable and the flashy people. In American culture, sometimes we get caught up in that. But it's not, it's not scriptural. So a few servants saved the day. The girl in the house of, of Naaman and the servants, the entourage who were with Naaman, who tried to get, you know, I'm sure they were very careful how they said it because if he didn't like what they said, he could have killed them. He was already in a rage. But he does listen to them. So we also see that Naaman respects his servants because he considers what they're saying. And what they were saying was so powerful and he considered them that he took the advice immediately and he followed it. Verse 14, he dips in the Jordan and his skin is restored beyond his years, but he had to be humble first. I look at the dirty Jordan like the ugly cross. The ugly cross. To some people, that's insane. 
I mean, honestly, you see these beautiful crucifixes and gorgeously or, ornate, you know, fashioned wood and they're stained and they're shellacked. And can I tell you what the cross was? It was a tree. It was a gnarly, creepy, branches cut off, twisted, knotty, and they would throw one prisoner on and his hair and his blood would get all over it, urine, feces, take him down, put the other prisoner up there, the ugly, nasty, dirty cross. But thankfully to that cross and Jesus willingly to foist himself upon it, we have salvation. You know, Jesus, he came from heaven, he, king of kings, lord of lords. He could have said, I'm not going on that cross. I don't deserve this. And he didn't. But you know what? Christ was humble. What a great picture of humility. D.L. Moody on this passage said that Naaman lost his temper, then he lost his pride, then he lost his leprosy. I would add, then he also lost his eternal condemnation. We'll see that in the next few verses. Who can understand the sovereign grace of God? Healing this Gentile man. You know, Jesus quotes this in Luke 4.27 so much that it lends to, you know, when he's presenting himself as the Messiah, it lends to the crowd trying to kill him. In Luke 4.27, he says, there were many lepers in Israel in the days of Elisha the prophet, but none were healed except Naaman the Syrian. Oh, nationalistic pride, that dirty Gentile. Ugh, we, we don't like that part of the scripture. They were mad at him. But Jesus speaks about it favorably, right? Not negatively. God doesn't play favorites. He saw something in this Gentile that he also saw in Ruth, who was a Gentile, in Rahab, same, and Roman soldiers at the time of Jesus. Remember the one Roman soldier? He says, I have not seen such faith, not even in Israel. This one Roman soldier's belief in Jesus Christ. Lastly, leprosy we can see is also a type of sin with its destructive power, its ability to spread. If, if not acted upon by an outside agent, it just destroys. It's just destroyed. Verse 15, we continue. Then he returned to the man of God. So he goes back to Elisha's house. He could have just gone back to Syria. He and all his aides and came and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. Remember, he's a baby Christian, right? He's going to say things and do things. He doesn't understand the full picture yet. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged them to take it, but he refused. Wow, instant retirement. Gold, silver, changes of clothes. He said, I will take nothing. So Naaman said, then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth. For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. It's a conversion there. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there, false god. And he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him. A short distance. I would call this again Naaman's conversion. A few things happen here. Naaman returns to Elisha, this time with a completely different attitude. He's completely humble. He also has appreciation in his heart. 
Remember when in, in the Gospels when Jesus healed the ten lepers and only one came back? And he said, weren't there ten of you? <laughs> only one came back to thank him and show his appreciation. And Naaman had that same heart. We also see that Elisha takes nothing for his miracle. Okay? Now today, many religions charge you for every little thing that you do in the church. Why did Elisha decline the gift? Because it was a miracle of God. It was grace. It was grace that led to his conversion. You going to put a price tag on that? Heck no. Heck no. Salvation is a free gift. It can't be bought. It can't be reimbursed. It can't be paid back over a long mortgage. It's just free. Christ paid the price. Jesus said to his disciples, some, some things short, pithy, just, this just has such a punch. Freely you have been given, freely give to others. He made it clear to his disciples, when you go out, don't be like trying to take money from people. Right? Now you look at the Apostle Paul's life, there were times that he took uh, an offering and the times that he didn't. And he would, often, he would take an offering a lot of times to give to another church that was struggling. Or if it was other mature believers who wanted to bless him, the, you know, the ox is worthy of his wages, he would accept it. Other times he wouldn't, and I believe, so he wouldn't stumble anybody. So there's a time and a place for everything. This wasn't the time or the place. You know, today there's plenty of cults and plenty of ministries that soak people dry, and they almost seem to, it's like an abusive relationship. I don't understand some people. Like, they don't want the freedom. They, they you know, you see this all the time. You hear people's horror stories. You know, they'll take the abuse of some pastor who's beyond wealthy and just keeps soaking his congregation or some cult that makes you do things and makes you, you know, leave your family and isolate yourself. Some people want to be abused. But that wasn't what Jesus set up. He wanted us, what he set up was so different than anything else that ever existed. Naaman, check this out, he wants to take two mule loads of earth from Israel back home with him to put on his property. Remember, he's a baby believer. In those days, they were superstitious. And, you know, even new Christians, you know, new baby Christians, someone comes up to the front, sometimes they'll still hold on to a superstition. But they believed back then that, so if you found the chief God, the God of all gods, and this was in Naaman, he's like, you're the only God. And you're the God of the Israelis. So what he, what he thought was, and they thought back then was, the chief God had a territory not understanding, you know, the uh, omnipresence. So he took the earth from Israel to come home. When he goes back to s pagan Syria, he wanted to feel real comfortable with that earth. I'm going to put it in his house. I don't know. Put plants in there. Put a bed on it. I really don't know. But he, he wanted to take it with him. And Elijah, Elisha permitted it. What we have to be careful, and this is great for those who are in ministry or desirous of ministry, or maybe you have a calling in your life and some, some type of um, ecclesiastical leadership, we don't crush the spirit of the new believer. Okay? So a new believer will come to me and they'll have all these ideas. They ask me my opinion, I tell them what the scripture says, but I don't, I don't lord it over them. I don't want to break them. I don't want to, I just, you got to give them, them their time. And even Elisha, he doesn't say, well, that's a great idea. He says, go in peace. In a sense, the Holy Spirit will follow him to Syria and uh, he'll convict him when he needs to convict him. Right? So we don't crush the spirit of new believers. We give them time to grow and understand the word. Very important in ministry. 
4, if I have to bow down into the temple of God, the God of Rimon. Now, so this is what happens. The king, maybe he's older, but, you know, he brings his general, his right-hand man with him in the temple of Rimon, the false god. And it, it appears that, you know, maybe he, the king kneels down and he leans on, on the general, uh, on, on Naaman. And he's like, forgive me, you know, the king's going to make me go in there. I've got to, you know, take care for him. But in my heart, the whole time, I'm thinking of Yahweh. I'm thinking of the God of Israel. I'm not thinking of Rimon. I know he's a false god. Uh, so, you know, who knows? When he went back, maybe he said, I won't go in. I don't know. Um, but what happens is, this is what happens. And, and I think it's sad that here you have a Syrian Gentile prideful commander who changes, and he wants to denounce all the false gods. And you got some Is Israelites that are worshiping those false gods and they should know better. Isn't that sad? You know, it's such a weird, again, it's opposite day. It's, it's a dichotomy. It's, everything's upside down. Um, if you didn't know and I, I gave you a teaser, you might think that Naaman's going to get judged somehow and Gehazi is going to be the next prophet. That's not what happens. And, and I think it's really sad when you see unbelievers have more morals and more loyalty than some Christians do. That's tragic. But that's what was going on here. Um, lastly, because we're going to move on from really Naaman and focus on Gehazi, Naaman gains a ministry, which was not easy, to go back to a completely Syrian uh, pagan country and now start sharing about the true God. His servants already knew about the conversion. He sees them take all the dirt and stuff, so it, the secret's out, and it's going to be out. Verse 20, But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian, while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So Naaman said, Please. Take two talents. And he urged them and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants and they carried them on ahead of him. Talents were heavy. You have enough talents, it's, it's, it's actually a weight of metal. A lot of money, lucrative. When he came to the citadel or the hill, he took, from, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go and they departed. Here's the exposing of, of Gehazi. He probably thinks... All those years in ministry, serving Elisha the prophet, I should, I should get something for that. I should get some type of compensation, a, a 401k, you know, something that I could use and it's going to set me out into the sunset. It's just a little bit of money. Hey, the Syrians can afford it. You ever justify things in your own mind and they're not godly? I don't know that this conversation took place. I'm just kind of throwing it out there, right? It's, it, the wheels are turning, all these things. You know what, I want to read what Warren Wiersbe says in his book, Be Distinct, on this. He does such a great job with it, I wasn't going to steal pieces from him. He says, while Naaman was seeking to live the truth and please the Lord, Elisha's servant was wallowing in deception and unholy desires. Thou shalt not covet is the last of the Ten Commandments. But when you break this one commandment, you tempt yourself to break the other nine. Covetous pe people will make idols out of material wealth bear false witness, steal, dishonor God's name, abuse their parents, and even murder. Gehazi had been decaying in his spiritual life, and this was the climax. 
He had pushed away the woman whose son died. We, we covered this in the last chapter, 2 Kings 4.27. And he had no power to raise the boy to life, 2 Kings 4.31. Now his, covetous, his covetousness took control, and it led to lying. And it finally resulted in Gehazi becoming a leper. Sorry, spoiler alert. The disease on the outside typified the decay on the inside. Wow. So when Elijah is not aware, and he wasn't aware, God revealed it to Elisha afterwards. He figures, well, Gehazi runs after Naaman to try to get a little compensation for the miracle. He lies, he makes up a story about the visitors, uh, and Naaman gladly gives it to him. He wants to give him more. He's just so happy about his newfound faith. What a, what a, stumble, a stumbling block to a new believer, right? Well, this is how it works, you know. You, we, we got you saved, we got you healed. You know, we a little scatterol, you know, give me a little something, a little jingle for that. You see what I'm saying? And in verse 24, it says, he stored them away in the house. He tries to hide it from Elisha, but you know what? He couldn't hide it from God. Isn't that crazy? You know, and, and maybe we haven't done this to that level, but when we try to hide things from God, God sees all of it. Who are we kidding? Even our thoughts betray us. <laughs> Once that thought enters, God's like, yeah, I, I saw that thought. You know, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> so verse 25, last few verses. Now he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant did not go anywhere. Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? That's powerful. My heart was there. You know, the Lord revealed it to me. I saw everything that happened. Is it time to receive money and receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence leprous, as white as snow. Sad. So Gehazi, all right, so Naaman gains a ministry. Gehazi loses ministry. He first of all lies. He's confronted. He doesn't repent. Uh, he, he hardens his story. He digs his feet in, and this is what happens. Well, we can look at this for a few, with a few reasons why. Number one, James 3.1, stricter accountability and character. You know, when we teach, when we lead, God holds us to a higher standard. Two, it was a terrible witness. And, and honestly, it could have stumbled uh, Naaman to think of God unfavorably. Well, this is how it works. It's like politicians in New Jersey, pay to play. You know what I'm saying? You pay, you get something, and this is what we do. And that's not how God works. Three, God loathes whenever money is tied to his work. We're going to cover this on Sunday. Actually, what a great segue into Matthew 7 about the false teachers, the ravenous wolves, the, the bad tree, the one who says, Lord, Lord, I did all this for you. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Very powerful. Elisha also gave Gehazi opportunity to repent, and he just continued to lie. Look at the difference between Peter and Judas. They both turned their back on the Lord. Peter wept bitterly and repented. Judas went out and hung himself. So, you know, when you, I don't know, whoever's listening to this maybe on, on the podcast or whatever, if you see some of these scandals, especially I think of the most abhorrent are the pedophilia scandals in the clergy, those people are not getting away with anything. You know, they are wolves and God will deal with them. Um, it's just a matter of time. Verse 26, Elisha said, did not my heart go with you? You know, when you're in ministry and you have oversight, 
and somebody goes bad, so to speak? Well, for Elisha, God showed it to him probably in a vision in real time. I felt that feeling. And, you know, in 15 years, some people have really gone bad. And it's, it's literally a sinking feeling. Your heart, is, it's like it hits the floor. And, and you, you see something unraveling, and you see it, hit, it goes to the point of no return. And there's nothing you can do but let it go. It's a horrible feeling. It's that Anakim Skywalker to Darth Vader transformation, you know. <laughs> Once he becomes, well, you know, it's just a little analogy. You know, in Star Wars, if you look at the words he used, which of uh, Endor, Anakim, I mean, he used, he stole a lot of stuff from the Bible, by the way. It's, it's very interesting. I mean, names that are so unusual that only, you can only find them in the scripture. Ministry gained and ministry lost. Naaman the Gentile, prideful, leper, army commander, loses his pride, and he loses his leprosy. He becomes a believer and gains a ministry. Gehazi, on the, on the other hand, is under one of the greatest men that ever lived, Elisha the prophet. Great man, humble man, did incredible things that God did through him. But verse 20, he deceives himself into thinking he deserved compensation for being in ministry. He even used God's name. It's just a searing of the conscience. I believe it's in Timothy. It becomes so great, it's like scar tissue. It's, it doesn't, it's not supple anymore. It's, it's irreparable. It's just a complete searing. He ends up being in ministry for the wrong reasons. And you know what? It happens today too. Some use ministry as a cloak for their sins. Um, others desire power, authority, attention, control. Maybe they couldn't make it in the world, and they see that maybe they could make it in, in, in ministry. You know, maybe I'll try it there. Um, some will quit. They can't have control over everything. You know, it's just this desire and this lust for power and authority, and whether it's in the world or in the ministry, I have to, I have, to have this. It's a sickness. It really is. Unfortunately, though, the best prophets, pastors, and even Jesus got stuck with disingenuous people. Amazing, isn't it? Did things happen even through Judas? Was he there when miracles happened? Sure. And look what happened in the end. Gehazi also becomes a user, a taker. And there are many that have become accustomed to this. I'm going to tell you this, name it and claim it, prosperity gospel. I've never met anyone who comes from one of those, that denomination that's ever been in one of those churches where they actually go through a study of the Bible verse by verse. They can't because they run into scriptures like this and it doesn't jive with their shtick. You know, it just doesn't work. So they always speak in topical messages, always generalities, never get deep into the scripture. It's sad. And they have a lot to answer for because they love money. They love money. Gehazi's heart strayed. And we see people's hearts stray today as well. We see ministry leaders, pastors fall into um, issues with money, with sex, with substance abuse. But what we might not be seeing is the slow fade of the heart starting to, to fade. What, at what point in Gehazi's life? Was it a few months ago? Was it a year ago? Did something click when he saw all that money? His heart started to stray. And then it just comes out into a multitude of different types of sins. What we need to do, especially if we uh, are in leadership, is put hedges about ourselves, put protection to check with each other, not to be isolated. You know, Gehazi might have just done the do with, with Elisha, but never really had heart-to-hearts in some time because he didn't want the conviction. And this was just, what does the, the, the book of James say? 
right? There's this temptation is not sin, but when it, it marries itself with a, a hunger that's inside of us, and then we take that temptation, it gives birth to sin. It's conceived, and that's the end. So the, the seeing all the money laid out was just a catalyst. It was already in Gehazi's heart. It's something we have to look at. So hopefully that we take the scripture, whether it's the New Testament or the Old Testament, and always hide these things in our heart so that we don't become the next Gehazi. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you. Let's turn around.